Hi everyone. I'm Will. And I'm Kaz, and we're going to continue our long discussion about The Last of Us Part 2. While we try to tackle the conversation about this game in a chronological manner, keep in mind we might be jumping sometimes ahead, referencing even something like the ending, so just a quick reminder that this is not a spoiler-free discussion, and no moment is really safe from debating. Same goes obviously for the first game and the Left Behind DLC. Last time we managed to make our way through the lengthy prologue all the way up to the catalyst of the game, the very contentious death of Joel at the hands of Abby and the WLF so-called Soul Lake crew. We saw Ellie mourn Joel in Jackson and prepare setting out for Seattle with Dina, following in the steps of Tommy who decided to go after the group that killed his brother, seeking vengeance. In this episode we pick up right where we left off and go through Ellie's first day in Seattle as well as halfway through her second, all the way up to the second flashback, the Finding Strings chapter. So, let's begin. So we get to Seattle Day 1, and the game seems to open up a lot. <laughs> yeah, this is a, it's kind of an open world segment that isn't really revisited at any point throughout the rest of the game. No, it's the first and only one. <laughs> yeah, it kind of ties into the narrative here because uh, Ellie and Dina get into the city and all they have to go on is the fact that these people had a WLF, Washington Liberation Front badge, and that's about it. Yeah. So they don't actually know where to go. So the open world structure here is kind of mirroring their plight in that they don't have a direction. Yes. Uh, I think there's definitely a lot of this a lengthier exploration of this exact idea in uh, these first three days of Ellie Seattle, especially the first one, there's a sense of a meandering of sorts. No real elements to grasp on outside of the main goal in front of them, which kind of plays into all of Tommy's worries or excuses when discussing the idea of going after Joel's killers. You know, the, you don't know where they are, you don't know how many. All of these these things are, are reflected in this uh, this very first uh, first day, especially. It's also um, I think Ellie's first time back in a quarantine zone. Yes. So so there's a lot of incidental world building and contrasting the Seattle QZ with the Boston one that she grew up in. But this is a very interesting gameplay change in a Naughty Dog game, and especially Last of Us. Uh, you have a map with an actual cursor, an actual objectives. Yeah, they overlay like game HUD elements onto an in-game a found object. It has both the characteristics of like a Seattle tourism map of the downtown area, and it has these dynamic elements that reflect where you are which is kind of a cool touch i did hear in a in a podcast neil Druckmann saying they actually thought of making last of us 2 a fully open world game hmm. which i find i find very interesting people really like this section uh for me i'm not much of a big open world person in general. This may be overly reductive, but the way I tend to see them is just that you're taking all the content I would have experienced in a linear faction and then just letting me sort of pick the orders, basically a Mega Man game or something, and just sort of scattering about filler or traversal area. And that ultimately I'm still experiencing content in a linear manner, but it's just sort of cut up and chopped up in places. And I think the Encounter design in this portion is still fairly narrow compared to what it will be later. Even if the game structure narrows and becomes more linear, the actual absolutely encounters and, and moments you're faced with here are very linear. They're just linear moments 
contextualized in a larger open world map. You look at the the bank heist sort of encounter, you stumble upon a bunch of infected that were uh, robbing a bank, and that's just a very, very narrow encounter space. It's a very small area that you can't get out of. It's not like getting the infected out in the open field. And going that way, at least, proved to be a lot more linear than, as you said, anything that came afterwards. Because they're just pockets of very, very enclosed things. Some cool world building in there, though. I think that part of it was more rewarding relative to the overall game than the combat or encounter design throughout. Uh, You get to walk through a synagogue that Dina gives Ellie a bit of history on. Well, not history on that specific one, but just cultural background, I guess. It's nice to see these kind of things. You don't really see them in modern games. Yeah, I don't. I can't remember the last synagogue I went into <laughs> in a game, if there is one. I don't know. I, I found it to be very nice to add this cultural layer, which might also have a more personal touch in it from the creators. And it was great both in offering Dina a more two-dimensional aspect as a character, as well as making this world seem real yeah, it's it's they find uh, they find spots that not just give space for world building but through characters reflecting on them also give us background we don't have because we don't have dina's background we we know a decent bit about ellie but we've got four years or so to catch up on in these new characters as well and what i found especially interesting about this part that there's a moment that i find crucial for character development in this part that can be very easily missed which is the guitar playing moment yeah it's a nice nice little moment (laughs) i just found the the cover amusing i was slightly inebriated and uh so amused by the choice of song to cover that i just started singing a duet and my sleep schedule was messed up at this time so this was at like 3 a.m in the morning and i'm hoping my neighbors didn't hear this drunk white boy trying to sing take on me really loudly to wake up to (laughs) (laughs) about that no guarantees there. Sorry, neighbors. I will say the guitar mechanic, or the guitar scenes, rather, is one of those things that kind of has diminishing returns for me. But at the same time, you're introduced to it, and they've made a mechanic around it. Even you can play it using the, the touchscreen on the PS4 pad. So once you've gone to the effort of actually gamifying it and coming up with that mechanic, you know that you're in for at least a few of those Yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to, justi- to justify the commitment. I don't think they over play it too much but uh i like this song a lot better than joel's <laughs> i'll say that i'm gonna mirror the exact same feeling for me this is how they should have done right joel's song where had to be a cover some stupid normal song that gets meaning from not its lyrics where it's like if i ever were to lose you right but just because he sung it to her exactly making a pop song, a normal song, or a a silly song have meaning that way would be a lot more powerful than if I ever were to lose you. Your your subtext is doing enough legwork that we don't need the writing to just hammer it home. And in fact, the hammering at home is, is doing a disservice to your subtext. Exactly. It was interesting that they chose to do that as a very missable art. I think we would be very, very surprised by the number of people who missed this moment or a lot of the moments in this this area. That made it past this point and still missed it. Well, the game does something kind of funny, which is that it has an in-universe explanation for areas you've you've checked off because you get to mark them off on the map. But there's no real in-universe way for Ellie or Dina to know that, hey, we've scavenged the whole accessible area. But then an achievement pops up if you actually do it all, so the game gets to let you know without conferring godly knowledge. (laughs) It's kind of funny. I think that's so smart. This is not anything to do with the game. Nobody's telling you that you... 
you have finished all these things. I guess Dina could have said something like, oh, I guess we've checked everything. We've probably found everything. (laughs) (laughs) Like what? How on earth could you possibly know that? But the trophy pop-up makes it so much better because there are a lot of, as you said, completionist gamers out there that would be driven crazy if they wouldn't have known. I'm at the point where I don't want to cater to us anymore as one of those people. I think it's a bad personality trait to have and i think games should punish us more and force us to reckon with this bad side of ourselves but that's not the approach most people have and i don't think other people have the same level of guilt i do about it i think a time-based solution should be implemented yes that is the countermeasure you chose to go there then that thing does not exist anymore on the other side right scavenging is, is strictly advantageous in the game it only costs you your time which we're gamers, so it has no value. Um, no, I'm just <laughs> there is no in-game trade-off to spend any more time finding stuff. Even in sections where there's like an obvious narrative urgency to the character and it feels totally out of place. The scene where you hear Joel screaming in the background, I wanted to scavenge that home. I was like, man, Ellie, she just wouldn't. There's just no way she would yeah. do it right now. So I'll just, I'll just rush uh, and not do it because it feels so out of place. But the game doesn't enforce it. It's not like, oh, you didn't you didn't stumble into the basement to see Joel die in time. So uh, you lose the game and uh, it, it will take it at your pace. Another thing that uh, stood out to me was how they managed to move certain items around to enhance, in a way, the feeling of openness and exploration. Uh, take, for example, the map of Seattle. If you don't find in the very beginning of this section, you find it in a, a few different places later on. Or the fuel location, the empty tank changes depending on which of the two main locations, the synagogue or the courthouse, you visit first. So they find interesting solutions for this type of level design. But anyway, that whole section seems and looks long and open. But that constitutes about a third of the first day. Uh, First days are seemingly very long in both cases. Yeah. So one of the cool things about um, this section for me was just getting to see uh, a place I actually know. So I live on Spring Street, which is the uppermost street on the map you get handed out. Uh, They're in downtown for the main portion of the uh, initial open world area, but they do move on up to Capitol Hill, which is where I live. Uh, You get to see our wonderful public library. You don't get to go in, though. There are some other cool moments where I synced up in this game. I think later on in the Abbey section, you're going... One section of the game that's established to the aquarium on the waterfront, and I was like trying to place, all right, so where would you walk through? And I was like, well, you'd probably go through International District. And then we went through International District, so that was really rewarding. The theater you end up based in at the end of this first day, they call it Pinnacle in Game because they're not using actual brands, is the Paramount Theater here in Seattle, which I've been through. I didn't know what it was when we were walking up to because it said Pinnacle. And I was like, okay, I don't know a Pinnacle Theater. But then I walked inside, I was like, wait, this is just the Paramount, isn't it? And I looked it up to confirm, and sure enough, it was. Oh, wow. So so it looks the same. Yeah, the interior looks the exact same to me. Obviously, a lot of the outside stuff is kind of unrecognizable at times even if you know the area just because of all the decay and uh, growth of nature and the destruction they've apparently bombed the city at some point in this game there's definitely a lot of of cool recognizable moments throughout that's amazing Um, i've never played in a space that I've, i've lived in before so that was that was fun i also having not followed covers of the game had no idea where it was going to take place so it's pretty cool to to just walk into seattle like that and not only is it like a location like seattle's kind of the game and then it's uh outside of that it's jackson and i'm leaving seattle to go to jackson next week so i'm just gonna do the entire journey of the game in reverse that's amazing 
and also kind of highlights the interesting and different choice taken compared to the first game. That one being sort of a trek across the country. So we finally get to a place we were trying to get to, which is Saravina Hotel, and we find Tommy's doing. And I think the game narrative-wise does something very interesting here, where it kills one of the perpetrators. The one of your checklist people, yeah, the names on your lists. It just kills one of them outside of your grasp or your play. They actually hold off giving a uh, would-be vengeance happy player uh, a payoff for quite a bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and when they do, it's not pretty either. It's not, yeah, it's not a clean, it's definitely not something you're supposed to enjoy. By this point, we've also established that Dina is not new to this dog-eat-dog world. It's not like she has been shielded from it until now. She actually mentions earlier that she had to kill someone much earlier than Ellie at the age of 10 to protect her mother. I'm glad you point this out because I had the same sort of unconscious presumption in my mind. Ellie and Joel, they went through a whole lot of hell. You guys in this world, you don't know what it's like. Dina probably, you know, just used to doing patrols. But no, I mean, Dina and Jesse and all the other characters and Tom that we meet they've also grown up and survived in this world and they're just as capable of facing down the, the you know the hardships it has to throw at them that's the beauty of Ina's reaction when they find Tommy is doing at a hotel that sort of disbelief even for someone like her Tommy did this no her, her starting point is still pretty high compared to a modern like a human in our world like she'd probably have more tolerance for grisly affairs than we would and yet despite that this is still repulsive to her I, I think that makes this moment actually powerful and tries to enhance the brutality of it it tries to add weight to it if not for that reaction i don't think we would think twice about the seemingly tortured dude dead in a chair in this world this is the i'm gonna take two separate people you both have to point out an answer to my question and if they don't match up you're getting gutted moment yeah i think nick is the the dead one of the eight here we don't really know him that well yeah and i think this method ellie recognizes and even explains she's seen or heard joel do this right she's not shocked yeah she's she's not shocked dina's shocked ellie is not and this will actually play out a bit later as well because ellie is going to try to employ this very method and uh, not succeeding because as we find out throughout this game Ellie is not Joel. Oh, yeah. M much later, yeah. So Dina's shock is balanced by her saying she would do even worse if she'd find her sister's killer, which is absolutely great <laughs> because the game never really goes into the idea that Dina is some sort of Puritan moral being and gives a bit more credence to her trying throughout the first day to probe deeper into why Joel's killers let Ellie and Tommy alive. I guess from a pragmatic perspective, it does not make sense that they left them alive. But everything about the situation, I mean, just seeing what they were even doing to Joel, I feel like it's a pretty obvious inference to, to make that they had some personal beef with them and that it wasn't about other people. Yeah, the, the, the gap between killing someone the way they killed uh, Joel and leaving witnesses alive is pretty fucking big. Like, it's, it's quite a chasm. Ellie seems to have an idea that they probably had a good reason for it. What's weird is, for large portions of this trip, Dina will basically offer unconditional support to Ellie. The moment they set out on this journey, you know, to sort of mirror what I think Abby says to Owen early on, you know, what you want is what I want. And there's no sense of maybe supporting this person means wanting for some something for them that they themselves don't want until the very end, which is weird to me that she doesn't really resist it at any point throughout the journey 
but then gets offended by it when it rears its head at the very end. But we'll, we'll come to that later. I find Dina as a character less of a effective challenge to her protagonist counterpart than like an Owen or a Lev. You know, as much as I love to love Dina, her importance and role is just set to a certain default after the first day. And I think her role is cheapened by these unwarranted narrative tricks. She's probably the weakest of the sort of main bunch to me too. I mean, Jesse is kind of similar to her, but even Jesse has more seemingly agency to himself than... I think even he feels more real, despite the fact that we get a fraction of the time that we get with Dina. Dina is almost more of a, a concept, a positive reinforcement, a, a life that Ellie could have. And she is a character in her own right at times. Um, she's more of a representation of that. And she she never really calls Ellie on a lot of this stuff. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm misrecalling. No, no, no. You're absolutely right. Because she's a, she's a very different anchor to Ellie. She's supposed to mirror Owen, as we later find out, but she's a very different anchor than Owen is to Abby. And I think a lot of it is also because of the different type of relationship they each have. Ellie and Dina seem like a burning fling pushed for by extreme events, while Owen and Abby feel like uh, I know you better than anyone else type of love. And I don't think Dina is a good comparison. In fact, the real Owen equivalent for Ellie is, my opinion, Riley from Left Behind. And, and you know, like, like in many ways, everything kind of started with Riley. The survivor's guilt, specifically. Exactly. Riley's yeah. death was Ellie's first search and need for her survival to mean something. Mm -hmm. While Dina is sort of relegated the background down to the distress, and the narrative seems to just tell us to go with it, while not really building Ellie and Dina's relationship at all. So I, I, I found Abby and Owen's ending a lot more tragic, and the rapport between them a lot more important and interesting than Ellie and it's, Dina's. It feels more real, I guess. I mean, I, I haven't seen the Riley bit, but they've... I don't know. They feel very human. I think the moments where they are just a couple of teenagers talking about teenager stuff are actually stronger than when Dina Dina is more involved in the story proper, uh, just because of that sort of absence I mentioned earlier. So after they find Nick's tortured body, they also find the codes for a gate to get them back on the road. And shortly after, they're ambushed by a trap. And of course, the horse dies. The horse always yep. dies. Rip Shimmer. I was taking bets on how long Shimmer would live the moment I got to Seattle. Vehicles in this game do not have long life expectancy. <laughs> and then we see Jordan again. Yes, Jordan is the, the one that manages to capture Ellie, I think. We get a, we're starting to get a little bit of background. There's this kind of weird tone running throughout the game as it arrives in Seattle. And that is, it's strangely empty. Yes. There's not a lot of people yes. around. The WLF are concerned with something, and that something is not yet Ellie. We're walking into the middle of something we don't understand. The WLF is, in fact, uh, the same organization that the eight people that came to Jackson were part of. So Ellie and them were at least right about picking the right city. They got lucky on that front. But anyway, they're, they're sort of moving their forces back for what sounds like a big engagement with something we don't know yet. Hmm. And due to the increased tensions, they've adopted the policy of kill all trespassers. Yeah. which apparently gives them the authority to kill Ellie and Dina just for showing up in the city before they've even committed any acts of vengeance. Yeah, the game managers, or at least attempts for the most part to paint things in as many gray nuances as possible. What Ellie is doing is driven by revenge and she kills a lot of people on the way, but at the same time, those people are also really trigger-happy and don't really offer any chance for a different non-violent type of engagement. Concurrently, we find out the tensions are so high for the WLF because they're a Mr. War. I'm not saying that justifies their approach, but it makes things a little bit more grounded and less black and white. 
So Jordan captures Ellie, and there's a conflict over whether or not to kill her as the rule states, or if they should try and extract more information because he actually recognizes her and is now concerned that there's a whole army on the way from Jackson here now. But Dina gets the drop on them, takes out his partner, and uh, gets into a scuffle with Jordan, who's getting the upper hand. Ellie breaks out. And we get our first act of vengeance. It is an act of self-defense in this case. But uh, the the camera does not play easy with this. It's not a (laughs) distant act of violence. It swivels around and we we get a close-up of Jordan's face as he is shocked to have his throat cut. And it's pretty gross. The violence in this game is, they've made much of a point about it being not particularly cathartic. It's nasty. I want to talk about two things here. One is, once again, about how much this game asks sometimes for suspension of disbelief. And I get it, it's part of the package, but there are just these moments that stick out like sore thumbs, just because of the tone and grounded nature of the game. And a couple of them are right in this scene with with Jordan. First, thinking back on it, knowing Dina is pregnant, there's nothing to convince me that baby will survive all that. Like, there's nothing. And second, I don't understand why Jordan acts that way after his partner is being killed just a second before. You know, I, I, I just don't. I think it's it's just disconnected narrative needs. Like, they need Dina to save Ellie. They need Dina to then be in danger. And then later on, they need Dina to be pregnant so that you can have your parallel with Mel. I get that. I think there's another thing you want to call out as well. Yes, and that's regarding what you said as well, about the elephant in the room. Something that's been made such a big deal of from Naughty Dog themselves, uh, reviewers, players, uh, lots of controversies, everyone. And that's the depiction of violence. Yep. I just did it myself. (laughs) So go ahead. That's something I find interesting because I'm not sure it's really violence itself. Yeah, I guess I can clarify uh, some, because I don't think that the bits of gore per hit (laughs) or the amount of blood splattered or whatever, I don't think this game's actually any more violent necessarily than the first one or like a Doom Eternal. What I do think it is, specifically like I was saying, uses the camera and goes for certain facial reactions or character emotions in connection with the violence, even verbal things like characters calling out their their names or their dogs' names when we get to dogs. Yes. There's been so much emphasis on the uh, violence. violence. Yeah. But violence is not really... I think what they do different in this game is not the violence itself as much as the suffering. Yes. I think that's a fair distinction. It just becomes like a point of weight for the violence. It contextualizes it. And it's very funny because it kind of addresses the criticism that has been brought to Naughty Dog with the Uncharted games since the very beginning with ludonarrative dissonance. For me, it, it hasn't been as much as I'm not a huge Uncharted fan. That part has never particularly bothered me too much because it felt like uh, a logical extension of the like Indiana Jones pulpy serial into a, a game-length experience. Obviously, Indy doesn't rack up the same body count because movies are much shorter and they don't devote as much of their time to the action as like an action game does. But yes, I don't know if it was directly intended as a them trying to confront they that. They definitely like take the time to actually give context for every single murder. A lot of times game. you just have a name. But that's that's fine because I think it even has a functional use in the game's stealth play. Oh yeah. There are times I used it pragmatically in combat, like waiting for them to shout the name of that guy so that I knew they knew. But yeah, Jordan dies. We managed to get our first taste of blood and revenge. We crossed the name off. It's kind of involuntary. It's not really how we want to do it. It just kind of happens. And we kind of get our clue for the next one on the list, which is Leah. And in general, we're sort of getting the picture for what Ellie's portion of the story is going to be like. Yeah. 
Her story is very much go to a place, find out Abby is not there, find out place where Abby or someone else in the faction might be, go there, try and figure out where Abby is. <laughs> There's a single-mindedness to it that I think appropriately matches presumably how the player feels, even if I wasn't there, and certainly matches how Ellie is in terms of her focus at this point. Absolutely. For me at this point, I'm starting to raise my eyebrows a bit at what the game is trying to do. And I got to a point where I was unsure what I, I as a player was supposed to feel like. I mean, obviously everybody feels and approaches this differently, but I wasn't consumed by Ellie's rage anymore. And it's interesting because the game sets itself up initially as a ladies no blood, Kill Bill, 60s Western type of scenario. Arya Stark. <laughs> yeah. You have this very identifiable group of people and you're going to kill them one by one and go through them to reach the final baddie and get to a conclusion either that revenge is bad or something about yourself. But I quickly started asking myself if this isn't maybe actually the anti-version of that very scenario. And once again, it's crazy to me the amount of risks Naughty Dog was willing to take with such a massive hit IP, like popularity-wise. But the interesting part of Ellie's Seattle days, to me at least, is just how, I wouldn't say boring, but almost frustratingly deflating it all is. It's a very game-like plot where there's basically a single MacGuffin driving it all. Because even the carrots on the stick they put in front of you revenge-wise, they, they simply take those away as soon as you get close enough. Yeah. You find characters that are already dead or that you don't get a pleasant death for. Exactly. Every step just adds to this frustration, uh, denying the player the usual gratification in favor for its story and character building. And, and it also highlights how unprepared and out of her depth Ellie is in, in this whole Seattle situation as well. I imagine if you were looking for vengeance, it was probably a little bit more unfulfilling than you were hoping. You don't even get to like dwell on it. It's like you're in danger and you immediately need to leave. It was an act of self-defense in Jordan's case. In Nick's case, you had nothing to do with it. You just get to see the corpse. Which is the same case for the next name on our list, as we're about to find out. Oh, I want to note, this is where I think the level design starts showing kind of its advantages over the first game. Uh, these environments are getting much wider, particularly as you move into Capitol Hill. You have very large sections of like city blocks and streets that you can roam through that you don't have to roam through at all. You can scavenge in them. You can find pieces of lore about the world. I got jumped by a group of zombies in the garage, and it nearly killed me. There is a part in the first game that's not really touched that much on in the in this one. In the first one, they were already were like the real evil is the man, right? But at least in the first one, had that whole kind of philosophy, you know, people are still inside. When they get infected, their first stages is that they're still there. That's why the runners are like screaming and is this horrific sort of idea of like not being able to control your body but being aware. There's like caches of infected all over the all over the states as people got infected in their homes. Yeah. Just waiting to be left, let out, I guess. And again, in, in the first one we had, I mean, it's a cliche for this kind of media, but we had uh, one of the characters, a few, not one, being beaten and how that affects the dynamic, mm -hmm. which doesn't really happen in this one. Yeah, the zombies are almost strictly an obstacle and nothing more. They play very little, if no role, in the narrative, which makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're strolling through the city streets, running into random zombies some places, running into random... WF members trolling throughout. And I think we're going to a TV station. Is that the yes. next yes. landmark? And that's the first time we kind of get a glimpse of 
this other faction called Scars. Or at least that the WLF call Scars. Yes. yes um, there's a grisly scene inside. There are indeed a bunch of disemboweled WLF members hanging from the rafters in this uh, TV station. Slowly make their way through, looking throughout, and find Leah, our third member of the Jackson crew. Another one dead. And she is already dead as well. And after the brawl that ensues inside the TV station, we are surrounded and start running, finding our way to some sort of underground tunnels. And uh, here is where we finally get our first infected and human encounter. And you get a, your first mixed faction fight, which is pretty fun. Fun in the sense that this game can be fun. It's kind of a tangent, but I think one of the main topics here is, is like, should you take any kind of pleasure or joy in the combat of this game does that say anything bad about you uh, and for me i always sort of separated the the violence side of it the taking any kind of pleasure in the demise of people which can be cathartic in a grisly kind of way and like your dooms and such but i still found satisfaction in sort of the execution of a fun tactical plan and i think that's separate i've heard a lot of things complaints about oh you made me feel awful like it, it blames me as a player for <laughs> doing something that it's accusatory. Uh, yeah. And like, I can sort of understand that, like, especially as we introduce those demos, we'll talk very soon about it. But I find it interesting that's the perspective of it is just because gamers are so used to being like... You're used to the, the game treating it as something for you to revel in. Yeah. Basically. When you say these things about The Last of Us, you never really feel like bragging about, you know, oh man, I took this dog and I blew his brains all over the wall. There's no uh, cool up-de-doo. There's no fun gibbs. Yeah. Although I did actually laugh once at, uh, maybe this makes me a psychopath, but there was one occasion where I absolutely laughed at the first use of an explosive arrow and just seeing how little of the guy was left after it. <laughs> God, that's horrible. No, I feel terrible. But the squeals of a dog or what? Yeah, the, the sound in particular is... They're all there to just make you not revel in it. It's not to make you feel like a horrible person. This is not something to find pleasurable. But the, I think there's still a, a tactical satisfaction to it. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. I walk into an, a room and survey it and sort of see all the angles. And, okay, I can walk this way. And then that'll give me cover to do this. And then I can access these two people on patrol from that one spot. And then move over up to this point. And uh, in this tunnel encounter, the, the fun part is uh, it's very simple. There's one thing to do. And I'm pretty sure everyone does it immediately, which is just hurl a Molotov or glass bottle or some other noisy distraction straight at the squad pursuing you and watch as the uh, the clickers run them down. You don't have to fight anybody. You just get to watch. This was also an area that showed the limitations of Naughty Dog's type of storytelling because everybody's dead. <laughs> Infected, humans, everybody's dead. But you keep hearing these clicker noises and you're like, okay, where are they? You cover the entire area and then you get to this door and as soon as you press the prompt, oh no, five clickers. What? I, where were they? <laughs> like, no. Oh, I, I had a similar, that shed I mentioned up, up in Capitol Hill. Can you like use the listen mode check to see it but the game will only show you yeah. uh, infected if if like the infected are actually loaded into the game at that point it doesn't matter if there's an ambush there you're not going to see them and i'm like all right i'm pretty sure there's people in there but <laughs> I, I have there's nothing i can do as the player to take a precaution here anyway these are very small details in the grand scheme of things and then we were introduced to a shambler a new type of infected oh yeah which is a lot more menacing sounding than it actually is 
Seems like a gross existence. I do not want to make it to the Shambler stage if I get infected. Oh, can I just say shattering glass is just super, super oh. satisfying in this game. Oh my god. <laughs> I did it so many times, even when I didn't need to and drew attention. It's just like, I gotta have, everything has to be shattered. Man, it's like rolling through pots in Dark Souls. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, exactly I, yeah. I don't know why. My friends just look at me and just, why? And I'm like, it has to be done. <laughs> it has they to all be deserve done. this. Every single pot must it break. It has to be done. I just go to a car and just smash the wheel. The game rewards you for it a decent amount of the time. <laughs> Even on the more stingy resource difficulties, you'll find stuff pretty often. We haven't addressed this, but how have you played this game, difficulty-wise? I started on the one below Survivor, and then I ticked some things up, and then I ticked some things down. I was fine with my health player vulnerability being on Survivor difficulty. I also put resources on Survivor. Excellent difficulty options, by the way. I mean, there were things that, just the fact that I had this many options, there were other options I kept thinking I'd like to have. But as is, it still has way more customizability up to it. Man, props to them. Yeah. It is insane. I didn't know I could I've do that. I've never seen this level of customizability in this sort of game. I did drop stealth detection down to normal because I was having issues where we're both at distance. I'm staring at them. I can't see them because my vision sucks, but they can see me. <laughs> I was tired of that. And I wanted, I wanted to feel like they were on the same level of perception as me. Fair enough. But yeah, that's how I play. How did you play? Just Survivor. Just yeah. straight up Survivor. You... Yeah. The real way. I mean, I changed at times certain... I think it was resources. I changed it to hard. And I think myself in certain fights. Because... Oh, man. Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Just, just we'll hold the fights. I mainly play Survivor. I was very surprised because um, I have many friends who play the game. I have friends. Just... You know, <laughs> I'll, just feel the need to get that out there. I'll, I'll <laughs> just put it in the air. I do have friends. Good to know. Good to and, know. Okay. And they've played the game, and I mean, mixed reactions all around. But I do feel the need to address the fact that a lot of them complain about how stupid the AI is. In what sense? How it's just so dumb, not seeing anyone, not reacting. Oh. And this was the complete opposite experience to mine. Oh. My fucking god. These guys are like chess mastermind players. Eagle eyes. These guys not only yeah. see me standing prone in the grass, they like flank me in a second in a way that I cannot predict. <laughs> yeah, I, there is some like the standard gamey stuff where like, yeah, their peripheral vision is not on the level of a human's peripheral vision because... That just makes stealth gameplay obviously really tedious. And there's also like the golden moments where you can like bum rush somebody and they'll be surprised by it. And they like, despite the fact that they have a gun out, are specifically looking for trespassers, have the gun pointed at you. They're not going to shoot right away. You can surprise them, right? So there are those little things in there. But I think in general, the AI is, is quite fun to play against and very observant. There's this moment, uh, I think it's the day three with the, the boat moment. Yep. I know the encounter you're talking about. I spent like, I think, two hours there. Oh, wow. Using everything in my arsenal. Everything. It was just the most insane thing I've played. I kept doing the thing, classic thing I used to do in like uh, Splinter Cell or even Mark of the Ninja, where like I'd almost be at the end of an encounter, but then I'd look at my supplies or health and be like, man, I really, I really used a lot here. I'm just going to restart from the beginning. Or almost like a Devil May Cry-esque analysis where like, yeah, I made it through this fight, but I, to be honest, I, I kind of lamed it out. I like sat in the back corner of this room 
and just sniped everybody as they came around this corner, and that felt lame as hell. So I'm going to restart from the beginning and try and take advantage of this space. I do wish there were some... There's what I like to say... Uh, I believe the most effective way to play a game should also be the most interesting way. And I feel like right. a lot of these encounter spaces are great. They're a huge step up from the first game. There's You like walk through it. In my case, I'd like walk through it after I finish the encounter and be like, Wow, this is incredible. They had so many places to approach from and cool spots you could utilize and all kinds of verticality in places. And at, at times it just felt like the most effective thing to do was to just sit in this one room, bait people in and take them out. And I was like, I don't want to do this, but it's definitely effective. So I kind of have to force myself to stop doing the most effective thing and start doing the most interesting thing. And uh, there's some stuff later on where enemies get, I think at the very end of the game, enemies get Molotovs. But I, was, I would like some more tools like that or with the AI that force me force me out of spaces or maybe just a little bit more caution. If three people have entered a room and not come out, maybe don't walk in that room. <laughs> I, don't know how to, I don't know how to program this. What I'm saying is basically that I wish sometimes the AI would operate at the level that the encounter spaces were operating yet and that I didn't feel like sort of handicapping myself if I try and walk through the entirety of the encounter space and leverage all of it in a fight. But I like it. Sorry. <laughs> that was a big tangent. It's one of my major points I did want to get to though. No, I think that's a very good and important point to make. A very important part of the AI is how they contextualize their own arsenal and how they approach a fight. And it is essential. One of the essential things about it is utilizing the new, more open areas. I don't know, for me, it was maybe just the way I play, but it, it was very kinetic. I was always on the move, planting a trap mine somewhere, and get one of the humans over there, and then the noise of the blast would wake up some infected nearby. I would sneak past or surround them and take them out. I will say, in terms of stealth in general, I think this game has some of the best most seamless use of stealth as a state to enter into and then exit and then enter back into in combat. There's none of this stealth is just the state you're in before you enter combat. It's much more fluid in this game than it is in most games I've played. I want to try to do a full stealth. Oh, I have no desire to do (laughs) No, because I think it's a good thing that you bring this up. I personally think the gameplay is leaps and bounds ahead of pretty much everything Naughty Dog has done before. I I would agree with that. Although I think I like one a lot more than most people in the gameplay. Oh, I mean, you don't have to to tell that to the multiplayer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But there there has kind of been a narrative of like, this is the last of us you play for the gameplay as though the first one was <laughs> right. weak in that department. And I was like, I, I, I'm, I'm still into this series because I like enjoyed playing the first one. I do think th- this gameplay is a lot more malleable. I appreciate the versatility. Not only do I appreciate it, but I feel it's there. I might not use the full spectrum of it, but I know it's there. It's uh, you know, not quite MGS five for me, but I, I actively prefer the AI and in many cases the the specific spaces you have these encounters in much more in this game than I do in MGS five even. Alright, so we have the shamblers, we had that, and we have another sort of horde set piece. Not before Ellie breaks her mask and Dina very panically tries to give her mask give her. to and uh, <laughs> That's a... That's the sort of rough realization that Ellie is immune. This is where it's really good that Ellie mentioned that tidbit earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I got to think that if, if Dina doesn't even have any reason to believe that at this point, she probably just shoots her <laughs> or, or consider, <laughs> really considers it. So they have this 
kind of they don't really have time to think about what's going on because they're being chased and there's this big set piece and there's a lot of emphasis on how much Tina saves Ellie in this circumstance there are a couple of times where Ellie is grabbed by someone and Tina kills the infected be it a runner or a clicker and they manage to get out and find a refuge in the theater it's a pretty good camping spot that nobody occupies yeah and they had the talk. <laughs> yep. There's a, a lot of tensions running high. Dina's still processing this revelation she didn't take seriously earlier from Ellie. And I think we get another revelation dropped here that Dina has been feeling sickish for weeks and now realizes that she's pregnant. Just setting up a parallel for later in the game. I rolled my eyes so hard. Yeah. <laughs> when I heard that. Yeah. I don't know how I felt about this. Feels like it's setting up a dynamic so that Ellie could go solo for some portions of the game. No, and looking back, I know exactly why they did it and the mirroring and the, yeah, with Mel later on and the way he's setting up to do. In that moment, I roll my eyes at the game. Jesse's gonna be a dad. Woo! Is this what this situation and game and narrative needed? But I kind of came to grips with it. I think for a long time I had problems with pacing and narrative choices throughout the game because I was trying to grasp at the beats of the first game that is very much set up like a feature film. Mm -hmm. For me, it was less about well, what's the other medium this looks like and more like what type of structure is this following? Is this really a three-act story? Because by the end of it, I'm sort of conceptualizing it as a it's two three-act stories where the act or the second acts have a lot of overlap. But anyway, we're sort of closing out. Well, we're not really closing out an act here. This is really part of Ellie's act two, I guess is how I would describe yes. it. And we're in the midst of it. They've, they've had some good leads on their first day. We've already crossed off three names, but we're still no closer to finding Abby herself, which is uh, the key contact Ellie really wants to find. You know, it, it seems like she's interested in getting vengeance on all of these people, but Abby is really the, the main one. And Dina and Ellie have their first real tension here. And it's less over the means by which they're acquiring vengeance and more about the baby. And then we get a flashback scene. Well, here, I think Ellie goes off to play guitar. This is... Once again, a very surprising narrative element. It's not something they did in the first one either. And we'll get into it right after our one-minute sponsor ad. Just a heads up, there is no real connection between us and our sponsor. We don't really endorse this fella. This was kind of passed on to us. Supposedly, we have to air it for a minute. So just skip one minute ahead if you're not interested. Well, we know that's not really a minute, but uh, let's be honest, it never really was. So, back to our flashback. It's Ellie's first flashback. There's a very interesting discourse around this. This has been one of the most favorite scenes and moments of the entire game for fans of Last of Us. But I feel it's also 
I mean, it's beautiful and it's very well written and it's a love letter to these characters. But for a group that criticized the game for being written in a very fan fiction way, there's no better scene in this uh, game that can deserve the word fan fiction than this very moment. I think I'm rolling with this, although I'm a little bit more positive on it. But yeah. The sequence is Joel surprising Ellie for a birthday and taking her on a beautiful stroll through the woods near Jackson uh, to a dinosaur museum. Combination space museum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the two-in-one pl- classic package and just a, a fun bunch of, I guess, character vignettes. Uh, everybody loves the part where, you know, if you instinctively walked up to the dinosaur's tail because if you were a kid, you'd, you'd want to climb it and found to your delight that the game actually lets you do it. I was one of those people. Yep, you probably probably liked that. I did it as well. I honestly had no expectation of it happening, so when it did happen, I was kind of taken aback. That's pretty cool. So while I saw people reacting instantaneous with, oh my god, Joel, and embracing from the get-go this scene, my immediate reaction was, huh, okay, interesting. Yeah... Because while I didn't have a reason to think Joel and Ellie was, were estranged by any means at that point, the register in which we've last left them was one filled with tension. The guitar in the beginning, post-winter, post-Firefly Hospital. You know, the relationship was a bit soured. Tension we even more weirdly come back to in the second flashback. And the tone that was being set here was so out of the left field to me and almost had a surreal element to it like very heavenly it became very fan fiction in the sense of this could come out of the mind of someone imagining a perfect father-daughter bonding normal day in the apocalypse without a worry in the world which also lent it a particular cynicism as well i couldn't understand where to place this relationship of theirs in the four years gap between the beginning of the game and Joel's brutal death, and I didn't really understand what the purpose of it was either. I mean, I'm not sure what more it tells us about the characters. I just find it very confusing. It doesn't fit with their relationship from the in, in the immediate timeline that we understand from somewhere else. It seems like there was a lot more tension to it. But it does fit with uh, an image of what we might have wanted for them. Exactly. To me, the weird thing about this scene, going back to it, is like, what does this actually accomplish for the overall narrative or the characters or the themes. And the only real takeaway I can have from it is that um, I mentioned earlier, we, uh, I was debating throughout my playthrough of the game, like is the, are the placements of the flashbacks kind of contrived? Are they manipulative? Does it make sense in the fiction or in the story that they would fall where they do? And that is the only way I can sort of contextualize the viewing of this in a, in a positive manner. And that is that Ellie is still early on in her quest for vengeance. She's choosing only to engage with her memories of Joel that are pristine, uh, that do not fulfill her with guilt or you know, fill her with anything less than a positive image of him. Yeah. So that us seeing this here is representative of how Ellie is sort of emotionally sheltering herself from some of the realities we're going to come to later. That's a very interesting uh, point. I, I haven't really thought about it that way. But I think, I, I think that it makes sense in that preserving that sort of moment. Yeah, I, I tried to place all the memories as we see them as Ellie actually engaging with the memory at that point. Mm-hmm. And that is how I chose to view them from there on out. And I think it, it makes something at the very end make the most sense. Whereas if I read it any other way, I have to view it as contrived. I kept thinking like... This just needs an editor. Like, this whole game could have been so much better by saying a lot less uh, or trying to say a lot less. It definitely didn't need more. 
Yeah. <laughs> so and the reason I mention this now is because even with this first flashback, I thought, well, look, narrative-wise, the school of thought on like most things, and even instinct-wise, you end after that space shuttle moment. You don't continue. Mm. You end it there. Right. That's the beautiful peak and ending of it. So what do we what do we actually get from the material that follows that specifically? What a value do we get? The interesting thing is that I feel like the very end of this segment actually contextualizes the segment itself because what we see is this love letter amazing bubbly world as i say fan fiction in the sense that it's exactly where people want them to be but then the whole thing ends with a fireflies logo and liars at the bottom and you know it's a reminder of very very on the nose of joel's lie but also very interestingly to illustrate how this very beautiful normal life moment from the museum is in itself a lie as well it's a slap in the face basically and it's a very interesting choice once again because they could have ended in that perfect in the space perfect emotional melancholic nostalgic moment of preserving Joel and it would have been the strongest point of the flashback and it still is the strongest point of the flashback but it goes further like everything in this game it just drags it out into found it interesting but very very annoying as an editor I would have cut everything that followed the space shuttle but I would have basically changed the entire meaning of that scene by doing so do you think they felt it necessary to remind people of Ellie's doubt and interest in what really went down before they before they get back to the next flashback? I don't think it's necessary. If you look at the second flashback, it would be even more powerful if there's no sort of seed in the first one. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's more to highlight how this lie will always hang above their heads, which, which makes this ideal relationship we see in this flashback one that is unattainable. Um, unsustainable as long as that lie keeps hovering above them. Uh, I also didn't really appreciate the sort of backwards foreshadowing, like the moose surrounded by a pack of wolves. Again, I don't really understand what the point of it is outside of the writers being cheeky about it. But that's how I kind of feel about this whole uh, flashback. Right. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't considered the ending of that in my previous reading, but that makes sense. I want to save some of the other discussion points for later because the reason I'm so attached to this interpretation is because it's the only way I like how the ending works out. But we'll come to that later. So we're now back in Seattle Day 2. Dina is sick. She can't leave with Ellie. They think Tommy is in a neighborhood called Hillcrest because they've been monitoring the yes. WLF radio frequency. And there's reports of another trespasser. Dina tries to join us, but she's left behind. And Ellie just goes to the Hillcrest area. Interesting neighborhood to actually pick for a location Ooh. in the game. Not, not a particularly notable one here. I'm going to remember that one <laughs> if I come to Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> if you come to Seattle. Well, there's not much of note there, uh, but sure. <laughs> this is, I think, our introduction to dogs in combat scenarios. Yes. Uh, as well as where we meet the bow, great weapon. Yes. Interestingly, also, there's a little backstory to the bow itself, and there's... Uh... Oh, right. There's a championship archer in the neighborhood who was <laughs> applauded for his zombie-killing prowess with the bow that we, I guess, pick up. They have a lot of vignettes like that where you sort of stumble through a family's story over a course of a few rooms and conspicuously place notes. 
uh, the encounters in this area are pretty open. Again, you're in a neighborhood and you can go down the street or you can go through a number of rooms on the side. The dogs will trail you. You kind of need the room once you're in an, an encounter with a dog where your options become very limited. What do you think about them as a mechanic, like a gameplay mechanic or a narrative? One as a as gameplay well? mechanic, I think it's a good good addition. Although, again, the idea is that it does encourage you to move along, but I almost want to just stay in a fortified spot, a spot I know is safe that I'm already taking up position in, kill the dog as it enters the room quietly, and then kill its owner and repeat. Uh, but ideally, they force you to move around the environment. Although they can always track wherever you're going, so there's really no safety until they're dealt with. Uh, I pretty much always took out the dogs first because I found it oh, yeah. easier gameplay-wise, and I found it easier I, I to think bear. mechanically, the game teaches me it's best to deal yeah. with them first. I'd rather hear the human saddened by the loss of the dog than the dog whimpering over the human. So <laughs> I don't know if that makes me better or worse. But also, if you get into an open firefight, before taking them out, they're just going to charge you, and then you're likely going to be forced into meleeing dogs. And I wanted to avoid meleeing dogs at all costs because I found it brutal. <laughs> I also found it interesting that this mechanic is introduced in the second day. It is sort of Ellie's ceiling for what she's capable of doing in the name of revenge. Or I think we're going to get to that later, but yeah, yes, it starts growing and growing and growing, and and we see kind of like peaks in a certain way at the end of this day. I mean, she's still sort of defending herself from the yeah. WLF, which will kill her on sight as a trespasser, never mind what she's already done to them. You could argue that the, the choice to pursue revenge, knowing that this is their likely response, assigns some level of guilt for the, the deaths you know you will probably incur along the way. I don't know if that's a fair fair interpretation or not, but I think she has resolved that deaths are acceptable in the course of her revenge, even if she's not instigating the, the kill in action in these fights. She bears something of a weight for them. The interesting part of it is that I don't think this is something new to her. In the Left Behind DLC, remember there is a point where kind of Joel gets in incapacitated. In the first game. Yep. yep. Right before winter. Left Behind is sort of takes care of that period of time that is unaccounted for in the first game. Oh, okay. I didn't know about that. I just knew the Riley stuff. You're in a mall trying to like get Joel some medicine while he's unconscious and fucked up. And the way Ellie deals with enemies in the attempt of protecting Joel at any cost. Are these like human enemies? Yes. Oh, okay. I didn't know about this at all. At the end of it, there are human enemies that kind of find you. And Ellie just goes to down. She just There's obliterates no everyone. Because that's what she learned at any cost. I think this is this is where a lot of the questions regarding the ending of the first game lie towards how the second game sort of sets up. Because we know that Joel took a choice for Ellie and we know that Ellie would have chosen differently. We know that she would have chosen differently both as a minor and as perhaps from not the healthiest point of view. If she chose it based on survivor's guilt, is that something to be respected? That's an interesting question. There's a lot of small touches that go into Joel's choice that don't get a ton of discussion. It's not quite clear to me that he would have that his defiance was inevitable, but specifically you have he's very heavily antagonized by the soldier guarding him at that point. And he also has, you also have the recollection back to Sarah, where he dealt with another asshole soldier that actually ended up just killing. Kind of wonder, 
if that soldier wasn't there, does he even does he even go through with it? I, I'm not sure one way or the other, but I just think the situation is has more color to it than it's often given credit for. Um, for me, the more important question would be if the roles would have been reversed, mm-hmm. if he would have been Joel the one who should be sacrificed, would Ellie kill for Joel? And this question has been answered before. It's not something new to this game. Ellie has killed for Joel before. Yeah, I think they, I think over the course of the game, even not having the left behind context, it, you know, if you were a person that maybe looked at Ellie as being 100% justified, honestly, I don't really care about deserve this, deserve that. I'm never really interested in who deserves what. I'm interested in what they think they deserve and what the, what they think others deserve, but I'm not actually interested in the actuality. Yeah. So we have the the Hillcrest chapter, which is... A string of fun combat encounters. Yeah. Quote-unquote fun. (laughs) I think Hillcrest is very offering in terms of approaches. I think we can approach it so many ways. But it is relentless. I think you can sort of try to run away... I think that's the case for actually a lot of a lot of encounters in the game if you want to attempt to do pure stealth and not pure stealth in the i'm going to snap every neck methodically as i go through but just like actually try and get from point a to point b you can attempt that there are some you definitely can't but for a lot of them you you can you're probably foregoing a decent amount of scavenging and world building to do so but uh, you know is it worth taking a life to find some some duct tape Hillcrest is especially set up in a way to incentivize you to fuck off, basically. I didn't even think about trying it at the time, but thinking back on it, that would have made things a bit easier. It's such an ordeal to just go methodically one by one. Kill everything. Yes. It is probably the most annoying part to do that. Some of the homes, specifically like a basement area, I think, in one and then a second floor area in another are just such natural hole-up spots that, again, the effectiveness dictates that I hole up again and use this to draw them out, and it's usually very effective. This is like the peak area of the entire game for me on this front. Never was it more pronounced than here. At the end of this segment... I mentioned there was uh, some misleading marketing. So in one of the ads or trailers, there's the point where you meet Jesse, right, in the game. Ah, okay. And instead of Jesse, it's Joel. Oh, okay, so the marketing has Joel. So when Jesse says, did you really think I would let you do this on your own? Oh. It's actually Joel. (laughs) That's so messed up. Well, that's great. I like that. So a lot of people were upset about this. In a way, rightfully so, I guess. It's kind of a showman. Sh- I don't know what you call this. Like a cheap advertising tactic. But at the same time, it's done in the service of preserving the story for you. So I don't know that I'm that offended. I get it. But it's extremely presumptuous. It's self-important, you know. You could argue that some poor sap was like, well, they told me Joel's going to be at that point because they showed it to me. And, you know, I bought a game for that and they lied to me. I bought the game because I I really love the scene where Joel tells me he wouldn't let me do it alone. I want a refund. Oh, God, that's terrible. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I just wouldn't show anything, but I guess that that's not a practicality. I kind of see both sides of it. I do find it extremely interesting and sad, but it is false advertising, which is not necessarily a good thing to do in general. <laughs> I'm not an advocate for yeah, but that's like false uh... advertising. However, there are creative ways to do it. So that there have been films with trailers that have nothing to do with the film <laughs> whatsoever. 
I guess being so vocal about this being a revenge story kind of put them in a weird spot. Yeah. I just feel like it put its fingers on an open wound that was not necessarily <laughs> needed. So were people like, when you get to the scene, and it is Jesse, were people just like pissed? I don't think, I mean, I think... Because I mean, it's pretty clear Joel is dead by that point. <laughs> maybe it's joel (laughs) maybe we just he walked out of the grave we planted him in no i mean obviously i think most people thought it was tommy by that point yeah that's kind of like what the game leads you to believe anyway because like the lone male yeah trespasser it's interesting because the whole time i was kind of doubting tommy's capabilities i a i didn't expect him to leave jackson to go after these people because his attitude he was very yeah it's very almost pragmatic about it in a way that I was not expecting a grieving person to be. He was decidedly not Ellie uh, following it. And then this whole time we get grisly scenes and I'm like, I wonder if this is just all misdirection. Uh, although I think, I think in those cases that actually was Tommy. So I was, I was wrong on that front, yeah. but he's just not portrayed with the same aggression until much, much, much later in the game. Exactly. So we get Jesse. We kind of knew that Tommy and Joel like, reminded as well that they've done some right. bad stuff. The Tommy that existed before we met him. Yes. Had presumably done some bad things. But we've only knew Tommy as this guy who regretted. Yeah. I think there's a story at the beginning of the game about him bombing a checkpoint at a Boston. Was it Boston? Maybe it was Austin. Some quarantine zone, killing some civilians. Yeah. That's listed as an example of his messed up activities but you know directly he seems to be pretty laid back chill guy just a guy who wants nice things peace and quiet i honestly expected him to have died before getting to seattle and us to have never seen him again but <laughs> again, fine, yeah. that'd be that'd be far too messy for this game which has... that would have been interesting <laughs> I mean, my, my vision of this game was these people killed Joel for reasons we don't actually know about. Uh, they go to Seattle, and the WLF isn't even there. Tommy dies somewhere along the way. I just wanted it to be a total mess. <laughs> but That would have been quite something. Yeah. So we find Jesse. I mean, Jesse finds us, or no. It kind yeah. of goes both ways. It's a bit of a shocking moment. And Kept you waiting, huh? No, sorry. <laughs> we have this pretty crazy, beautifully made set piece with a car. Yeah, the game shifts into Uncharted set piece mode again, similar to some other chases. Yes. Tiny bit of little narrative dissonance here. I was totally empty on ammo, and then we get into this nice sequence we where suddenly like my gun infinite, has infinite, infinite ammo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was literally out of bullets when I walked into that car, but that's cool. Again, very missed opportunity with that because I, I don't understand why they did that. It would have been easy to incorporate. It doesn't matter. Uh, they, they wanted they wanted a, a, you know a turret sequence, and that's not you can't reconcile it with you not having any ammo. It's a great fun set piece. It's a fun moment. Nothing wrong with it outside of the like, infinite ammo. Yeah, I still don't know that these moments fit neatly within The Last of Us, like. They're they're at the rate at which they're used, but it is a nice change up. Yeah, no, I I, I don't mind them per se. I just again, I think could easily be better. But yeah, so after this set piece, we find our way back to the theater. This time with Jesse, and there's a bit of a there's a bit of tension going on here. Obviously, Dina was left at the theater because she's pregnant with Jesse's child, but Jesse doesn't know. And Dina doesn't tell him, and this makes things extra awkward. And there's a sense, there's a bit of a sense that Ellie might feel like a third wheel, given the new circumstances. And now that Jesse's here, and she retreats, leaving them alone. But day two is only halfway over, 
However, this is where we'll end today's episode of The Cast of Us. Quickly after this moment, there's a, a second flashback that we'll get into in our next episode. Hopefully, we'll have the continuation in a couple of weeks ready for you. Thank you once again for listening and keep an eye for our next episode of The Cast of Us.